Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Frontiersman, colonizer, missionary to the Indians, explorer of the American West, Jacob Hamlin has long been one of the most enigmatic figures in Mormon history. In a new biography titled A Frontier Life, Todd Compton disentangles many of the myths and controversies surrounding Hamlin and presents a portrait of a true pioneer who lived life at the geographical, cultural, and spiritual boundaries of his era. Hamlin served as a guide alongside John Wesley Powell, who was a missionary cultural liaison and negotiator to the Indian tribes of southern Utah and Arizona. He struggled in that latter role, sometimes unable to bridge the gulf between Mormonism and Indian culture. He disavowed violent conflict and sought peaceful resolution where others resorted to punitive action. Uh, Todd Compton is author of this new book. Subtitle is Jacob Hamlin, Explorer and Indian Missionary. Todd Compton specializes in Mormon history and the classics. He's published numerous articles and five books in those areas, including uh, In Sacred Loneliness, The Plural Wives of Joseph Smith. He's also uh, co-author of uh, Fire and Sword, A History of Latter-day Saints in Northern Missouri. Todd Compton is in Salt Lake City for the 61st Annual State History Conference in Utah. His presentation is Saturday, 9 a.m. at the Fort Douglas Officers Club, and he'll be uh, participating in a discussion on Native Anglo interactions. Todd Compton, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you. Glad to be here. Appreciate you uh, taking time to be with us. Uh, By the way, the uh, State History Conference um, begins tonight, I believe, with the keynote address from Jared Farmer. That's the main Salt Lake City Public Library. Then the uh, sessions tomorrow at the Rio Grande Depot and the sessions on Saturday, including Mr. Compton's, uh, are at the Fort Douglas Officers Club. That's correct. And before that, um, before that keynote speaker earlier on at 5.30, I'm doing a book signing at Benchmark Books. Benchmark Books. All right. Yeah. In, in Salt Lake City. In Salt Lake City. All right. Great. Um, so, uh, Todd Compton, there, there have been, there's two autobiographies, several biographies. Why another biography of uh, Jacob Hamlin? Well, um, I come from an academic kind of background. I have a Ph.D. in classics, not American history, (laughs) which is another story. Uh, But uh, when I got interested in Jacob Hamlin, I wondered if there was like an academic um, biography of him someplace uh, with good footnotes and so on. And uh, I, I remember the first book I picked up was Bailey's book, uh, I think called Jacob Hamlin, Buckskin Apostle, Paul Bailey. And I, I read through it, and there was lots of dialogue, and I thought, wow, the, the sources must be very good to include all this dialogue, you know. So, but then I looked at some of the primary sources, and he'd made up all the dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and other books written on Jacob Hamlin... Um, Often were really good at dramatizing his life, but um, they uh, weren't um, as academic as I, I had hoped for. And in addition, some of them are, are very out of date, uh, like the Preston Corbett biography, uh, which is you know has good points. They all the biographies have good points, and um, um, but um, Preston Corbett is way out of date now, and and there's a whole avalanche of documents that have become available that he, he didn't have available back when he wrote his book. Mm. So all, all of those reasons. And you emphasize a couple of his roles. We'll get into those in detail. Explorer and Indian missionary. I want to talk a bit about um, heroicizing that, that went on. This was typical, not only with Mormon pioneers, but with Western pioneers um, and uh, Jacob Hamlin was, was a legend in his own time. That, that's correct. And um, the first time Frederick Bell, Dellenbaugh met him, and Dellenbaugh was a member of the second John Wesley Powell expedition, uh, when he finally met Jacob Hamlin, um, he said, oh, he was so quiet and so dressed so plainly, I could hardly believe this was the famous... Indian fighter and Indian manager <laughs> I'd heard about. And this was as early as 1870, when was it? 71, I believe. And um, coming from a non-Mormon, so as early as that, he, he was well-known in the West. He was called uh, Leatherstocking of Utah. It goes back to James Fenimore Cooper. Yes, uh, Dellenbaugh called him that. Dellenbaugh got to know him quite well. 
and uh, we became very good friends with him. And he he wrote a number of books about the Colorado, and uh, one was a really fine memoir of that second expedition. And um, and he called Jacob Hamlin the leather stocking of Utah, and someone who knew the the Indians of the Southwest better than anyone else. And uh, Hamlin, in his role as explorer, he in the Grand Canyon country, he he guided John Wesley Powell and his and his team, didn't he? That's correct. Yes, he um, he got connected with Powell through Brigham Young, and um, Brigham Young recommended him as someone who could help Powell in his second in that second expedition. So he helped to with the logistics of that second expedition. And uh, then after the second expedition took place, then Powell kind of turned to topographic matters, you know, making maps, maps, exploring the territory. And Jacob was, you know, very, very helpful with that. And um, Jacob also acted as Indian interpreter, and um, Powell was very interested in anthropology and also interested in taking good photographs of the territory and and the local Indians. And so Jacob Hamlin helped with that. And we have some wonderful photographs that Jacob Hamlin helped helped uh, arrange, but also that he is part of. And in, on the cover of my book, we have a picture of, of Jacob Hamlin and John Wesley Powell sitting with a number of Kaibab Paiutes. Hmm talking to them. You can go to upr.org to uh, to look at we've got that uh, cover uh with the narrative for today's program by the way. Uh, and of course, uh Jacob Hamlin knew the country in large part because he was close to the the Paiutes and the Indians of that area. That's right. He'd uh he'd come down to southern Utah in, you know, 1854 and um uh, about that same year he he visited uh, at first, he was in Harmony, uh, and, but then he went below the rim of the basin down into what we call Dixie, which is the St. George Santa Clara area, and he founded uh, Santa Clara, and at that time, the area was just teeming with um, Paiutes, and um, so from that time, he, he you know, became a close observer of the Southern Paiute and lived among them and got to know their language. And uh, people, I think, said that he he, he was took on Indian traits. He became very close to the Indians, adopted some of their ways. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that, that was, again, that was a kind of a common thing among the frontiersmen in, in western United States. Um, they almost prided themselves on, on becoming like like Indians as they traveled among Indians, and some of them married um, Indian wives, such as Kit Carson. His first wife was an Indian, and Jacob Hamlin um, was like that. Also, he married uh, at least two in Indian wives, uh, though we don't know much about those those marriages. Uh, but um, Yes, people said that he he spoke slowly like an Indian, and so when he spoke to Indians in in this slow, measured way, they they hung on his every, every word. And of course, this is a, uh, a horrible paradox here. Uh, you, right near uh, the last chapter on on legacy, you you address this head on that uh, the Buffalo Bills Wild West shows the the feats of marksmanship. There was a morally accepted, at least among the, the whites, um, concept here that you were, you were a good marksman to, to kill Indians. Yeah, that was part of the, the mythology of, of the Western hero um, for um, Buffalo Bill and Kit Carson in these, in these dime novels. They were portrayed as, um, as, as killing Indians. You know, that was their main opponent. And, um, and uh, the the gun was seen as the the implement of Western expansion, and of course the main opponent to Western expansion was was Indians. And um, so, yeah, I contrast that that focus on the gun, and of course Buffalo Bill was a great marksman, was always in competi- and gun competitions, shooting competitions, 
Uh, I contrast that with Jacob Hamlin, and um, early in his career, before he went down to southern Utah, he was he was in Tooele, west of um, Salt Lake City, and um, he was uh, a military leader. And um, some Indians, Goshutes, had stolen some some cattle, and he was sent by his superiors to go and punish these Indians by killing them, specifically by killing them. And so he tracked them, and very early in the morning, he and his group of people, um, a group of soldiers, attacked this camp of Indians. And um, the Indians scattered, the Goshutes scattered, but he followed one up in the mountains, and he knew he had this duty to kill him. So he took his gun and took a bead on this, this Goshoot and pulled the trigger, and his gun would not shoot. <laughs> And so the Indian, of course, uh, started shooting arrows at Jacob, and they, you know, one went through his hat, one went through his coat, and Jacob was trying to get his gun reloaded and shot again, and uh, again his gun would not shoot. So he saw a rock, and he grabbed this big rock and threw it at the Indian and hit him. And so the Indian ran away. And after that, Jacob Hamlin felt that. That that was kind of a sign given to him from God that he was not supposed to kill Indians. Hmm. And um, that kind of was almost a conversion experience for him. After that, he felt that that was not his mission to kill Indians. He should work with them in, in other ways through understanding, communication. And um, he felt that God had given him the witness that if he didn't seek the blood of Indians, he, he would never be killed by Indians. So he was kind of protected in a supernatural way. Mm. But I put that in the in the context of, of these Western heroes like Kit Carson and, and um, Buffalo Bill, and it's, it's, it's a very funny contrast, because instead of this gun that is totally reliable, you know, in Indian Wars, it's this gun that would not shoot, mm. a gun that God treated so it would not shoot. So it's, um, it's a very, Jacob Hamlin, because of that, incident. He's a very different kind of Western hero. And this is in, as we said, in bold contrast to, in, in fact, in, in your chapter, I hadn't known this in that last chapter that I made reference to, uh, John Chivington, who commanded the military forces at the Sand Creek Massacre, was an ordained Methodist minister. He he, he was out there to kill Indians. And they, this was seen, I think, uh, generally, I guess by most people as... Uh, Indians are in the way of uh, manifest destiny, of progress, and uh, if, if they're in the way, then and they're uncivilized, they're savages. There is this dichotomy, and and so I guess a lot of people didn't didn't think twice about going out killing Indians. Yeah, yeah, Chivington. What was that quote? He said, "I have come here to kill Indians, and you know this is the mission I've been giving from God to kill Indians <laughs> as the Methodist minister." So his religious viewpoint turned him toward killing Indians, where Jacobs turned him toward um, uh, not killing Indians, uh, and getting to know them, spending time with them. Um, and um, so that attitude, you know, uh, kind of like the only Indian is a, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, um, it, it was not unknown in Utah. And so Jacob had to uh, work against Mormons who had that more militaristic um, anti-Indian attitude throughout his life. Could you remind us the, the, the Mormon attitude toward the Indians? This was, is, it was quite a bit different from the, uh, the mainstream American attitude, but you're saying the effect, uh, in effect, uh, still Indians were in the way. But, but remind us of that, that historical view that Mormons had. Well, of course, um, the Book of Mormon views the ancestors of the Indians as descendants of um, Israel. Uh, who came over by by boat and settled in America uh, around, what was it, 600 B.C. And so the whole Book of Mormon is about um, the descendants of the Indians. And um, according to the Book of Mormon, um, they finally uh, had a tremendous war, and the survivors of this tremendous war were kind of, became uncivilized, and so... Um, these were the people who whites, European whites, met when they when they came over here. 
But according to Book of Mormon prophecy, these Indians would be converted and, and would help uh, the Mormons in the, the final days, in the wars of the final days. And so Mormons had great hopes that Indians would convert to Mormonism and, and stand with them in their battles with Gentiles. And uh, as I mentioned, as I write about in the book, uh, these mass conversions that Mormons hoped for never, never occurred, and uh, for many reasons. But one was that um, the cultural chasm between Indians and, and uh, European whites was, you know, very uh, vast. It was, you know, the language was different. Uh, so many parts of, of their cultures were understood entirely differently. Um, the typical converts to Mormonism in Europe or eastern United States, of course, knew the Bible back, back, backwards and forwards, and Indians could not read. And um, so um, Jacob, Jacob, Mormons, including Jacob Hammond, often became quite disillusioned with Indians who, even if they were baptized, um, did not know how to become full Mormon converts or did not even know how to live uh, you know, as the whites expected them to live as farmers, um, their their life style was so different than than the whites, and um, that that gap never could quite be bridged. And you write that it appears Jacob Hamlin was at least somewhat aware of this conflict. He was sent out as a colonizer. That was in conflict with his other great life's work as Indian missionary. That's right, and that's one theme that really stood out for me as I was working through this research, is um, even as these um, young men were sent down to, to southern Utah to be Indian missionaries, they were also expected to um, provide for themselves, to, to build houses, become farmers, and it was kind of difficult to, to do... to focus on learning the language of the local Indians and work with them, and at the same time, uh, provide for yourself in very, very difficult circumstances in arid southern Utah. And in addition, water is very scarce in southern Utah, and so um, it was very uh, difficult to share water often. And uh, that's a theme just in regular Mormon history, This how, how precious water is and how you have to be very, very careful in how you portion it out. And there's lots of disputes about water in Mormon history. And so as the Mormons increasingly came down into to southern Utah, they began taking over the water resources um, of the Paiutes. And so... As they became settlers, they became competitors. As they became missionaries, they became competitors with, with the Paiutes. And um, when there were not very many whites there, this was not such a, a major issue. But when Brigham Young sent um, something like, what was it, 500 families to settle St. George, then all of a sudden it was a major conflict with the local Paiutes. And, and the Paiutes, of course, lost out. But Jacob Hamlin understood this and saw what was happening to, to the Paiutes. He wrote letters to John Wesley Powell and Brigham Young. Uh, but his main loyalty was to his, you know, to Brigham Young and um, his people. At the same time, he had loyalty to the Paiutes. So he was had great inner divisions on this issue. We're talking with Todd Compton. He's author of a new biography of Jacob Hamlin, uh, A Frontier Life, it's called. And uh, Todd Compton will be uh, signing books. Um, is it uh, this this evening or tomorrow? Five thirty this evening. Five thirty uh, this books. evening at Benchmark Books. Then his presentation at the uh, State History Conference is at uh, the Fort Douglas Officers Club. That's on uh, Saturday morning at nine. That conference begins on Thursday and runs through Sunday. Uh, by the way, more information at the uh, website um, heritage.utah.gov. Uh, I just googled. Uh, Utah State History Conference. Todd Compton, uh, more following a break. We'll get into this idea of the legend. There was a, a, a big pushback as well, a feud with John D. Lee, 
Uh, we'll get into uh, some interesting experiences as an explorer as well. We're talking about Jacob Hamlin, a famous early uh, Utah pioneer, uh, with his biography, biographer, uh, Todd Compton. More following the break. Senegal is the source of much of West Africa's most melodic and inspired music. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll explore some of the rich musical traditions and hear contemporary voices. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Senegal, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Fridays at 10. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Culligan Water of Cache Valley, family-owned and operated for more than 62 years, providing Culligan bottled water, salt delivery, or soft and conditioned water. Hey Culligan Man, service from the man in blue. Online at logan.culliganman.com. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about frontiersman, colonizer, missionary to the Indians, explorer of the American West, Jacob Hamblin. He's long been one of the most enigmatic figures in Mormon history. In a new biography, A Frontier Life, Todd Compton disentangles many of the myths and controversies surrounding Hamblin, presents the portrait of a true pioneer who lived life with geographic, cultural, and spiritual boundaries of his uh, era. Um, and uh, Todd Compton is uh, going to be uh, this afternoon at 5.30 at Benchmark Books for a book signing. Then his presentation at the State History Conference uh, is Saturday morning at 9. That's at the uh, Fort Douglas uh, Officers Club. Uh, and uh, the conference is running Thursday through Sunday. Todd Compton, I think it was Juanita Brooks, called uh, this, this area of maybe southern Utah uh, the ragged edge of the frontier. This was... Uh, this was hard, hard work. I'm, I'm interested in talking a little bit about the this heroicizing, the making of legends, Mormon pioneers, uh, non-Mormon pioneers. Um, uh, this is, I guess, an impulse that we have, and you, you probably see this in your studies in the classics as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, so as, as I mentioned early on, Jacob was became well-known, and... Um, View, people viewed him as, as as a hero, and as you were, as you mentioned, John D. He had he was at first he had he was good friends with John D. Lee, and he um, he was not involved in the Mountain Meadows massacre. He was in Salt Lake City when the massacre occurred, um, but the massacre occurred in Mountain Meadows, which was his herd ground, and so he was involved in in the aftermath of of the massacre. And um, he disapproved of the massacre, but um, he had good relations with with the people in um, uh, Harmony and and Cedar City who had been in, involved in it. He was good friends with John D. Lee, and and he worked with Isaac Haight also. Um, but he had a falling out with uh, John D. Lee in 1874, and John D. Lee in his in his diaries, he attacked Jacob Hamlin, and uh, in a letter to Brigham Young, a virulent attack on Jacob Hamlin. And um, since then, uh, of course, the reputation of John D. Lee has gone back and forth. Um, and Juanita Brook kind of Brooks kind of portrayed him sympathetically as a scapegoat for the massacre. Um, and um, P.T. Riley wrote books on. Um, the Colorado, and he was very sympathetic with John D. Lee also. And so P.T. Riley kind of led a uh, uh, a resurgence against Jacob Hamlin as hero and portray him as dishonest and, um, and grasping. And so in my book, I take issue with P.T. Riley in a number of places. You, uh, you don't uh, buy the, uh, I guess, the... The, the backlash. Where, where does, uh, I guess, you know, Jacob Hamlin, the man, would be different from uh, Jacob Hamlin, the legend. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of, I can't remember the name of the movie, where they say if you have a choice between the, the reality and the legend, print the legend. 
<laughs> uh, and that you know we kind of had that impulse, but uh, there, uh, Jacob Hamilton man had some had some weaknesses, didn't he? Yes, he he was definitely human, um, and uh, sometimes it seems like to me he gave up on the Southern Paiutes um, after he didn't really give up on them, but he he kind of there was kind of like a early honeymoon when he lived among them, and and then he got more interested in the um, Hopis. He had great hopes for the Hopis because they. They seemed a little bit um, more Western than than the Paiutes. They lived in towns, and they had a beautiful, beautiful ceremonial system. And so he would cross the Colorado every year, starting in 1858, and go go visit the Hopis. And um, uh, other other flaws he had come from his family. His um, Members of his family, his descendants, um, uh, felt that he did not spend as much time with his family as as, as he he should have. He was often gone on his missions, and um, he was involved in the cover up of the Mountain Meadows massacre, which is uh, one of the uh, you know you have to consider that as a flaw both of the Mormon culture at the time, and uh, he was part of that. Um, so he, he was, he was definitely a human being, yeah. but the, the attacks on him is totally dishonest and, um, and totally grasping and acquisitive of property. I, I, I haven't found evidence for that in the primary sources that I looked at. We're talking with Todd Compton. The book is A Frontier Life, Jacob Hamblin, Explorer and Indian Missionary. Uh, he was instrumental in colonization, Mormon colonization in southern Utah, in northern Arizona, on into New Mexico. I believe that's he, he died in New Mexico. Uh, and you're welcome to join the conversation, 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. And we have uh, this email from Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. He says, I frequently drive past the Jacob Hamlin house in Santa Clara which I have read is a town which is largely settled by Mormon converts from Switzerland. I used to live in Switzerland, so this is a point of special interest to me. Do we know who first settled Santa Clara, Hamlin or the Swiss or somebody else? And do we know anything about his relationship with these southern Utah settlers who came all the way from Switzerland? Uh, well, he married one of them. Mm. <laughs> Louisa Benelli was uh, a Swiss convert. Uh, but, however, Jacob Hamlin and his fellow Indian missionaries were the first, were the ones who settled Santa Clara, which they did in, um, when was it, 1854. That was when he first visited there, at least. And um, the, the Swiss were called down to Santa Clara at the same, by Brigham Young, at the same time that he um, called those 300 men to settle St. George, which was in late... Um, what was it, late 1860. And so they came, 90, there were 90, 90 members of that Swiss group led by Daniel Benelli, who was Louise's um, brother. And um, so kind of the same thing that happened with St. George happened in um, Santa Clara. All of a sudden, the Indian missionaries were totally outnumbered by these Swiss converts. And the the story of these Swiss converts is a whole other story, of course, and they had their own struggles with with an environment that was so totally different than what they had left in Switzerland. And um, uh, but there, there were conflicts between the previous Indian, Indian missionaries and the and the Swiss converts down there, as you can imagine, their cultures were so different. Mm. Jacob Hamblin eventually left Santa Clara and and moved. He and his family moved to Kanab. But before they did that, they did build that house, which is a wonderful um, structure to, to visit if you're down in southern Utah. That's one of the great historical sites in southern Utah, so be sure you go to Santa Clara and visit that. In fact, that's why I first got interested in um, Jacob Hamlin, is my parents were um, uh, retired to St. George and became missionaries, and so they led tours through that home. And when they started doing that, I started getting interested in Jacob Hamlin and started wondering about uh, if there were good biographies and what the primary sources on him were. Mm. 
Of course, you've dived into uh, to, you know a lot of the a lot of the sources, primary sources. Um, I'm interested to follow up on on this idea that you know you have a group of people who come from, say, Switzerland, or wherever it may be, and they feel called of God. They convert to Mormonism and uh, come to Salt Lake, and then they're sometimes almost immediately sent out to this ragged edge of the frontier, and um, it's, it, there's some extraordinary challenges, uh, you know, cultural and uh, a new landscape and, uh, and uh, almost no help from the outside once you get out there. Yeah, it's it's an incredible story, and um, for to go from Switzerland, the mountains of Switzerland, to you know, arid, dry um, southern Utah, and they struggled, and they you know they were such good farmers, they were able to make a go of it, and Brigham Young sent them with you know specific economic goals in mind. He wanted them to. The, the whole area, it became known as the Cotton Mission, so he wanted the whole area to, to supply cotton and, 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 and other, other um, things such as grapes and uh, indigo, other things too. And so the, the Swiss saints, they really struggled. Uh, but what, what is interesting to me from the standpoint of, of Jacob Hamlin and, and the Southern Paiutes is they were not sent as Indian missionaries, as Jacob and his people had. And so there was a real shift in focus in that town from being an Indian missionary town to being an, a town with economic goals. And and so the, the Swiss saints, they kind of looked to Jacob Hamlin and the Indian missionaries as, um, you're here to help us deal with the local Indians. And so the focus of the of the town changed, and and the status of Jacob Hamlin changed, too. And this happened over and over again with him. He started out as an Indian missionary, and then Brigham Young sent other uh, settlers with economic goals, and and suddenly the town wasn't an Indian mission anymore. It was a town with economic goals. What what was his attitude? Does he write about this at all? Does he feel conflicted? He goes out to try to convert the Indians. That part of his mission, you write, is he, he wasn't all that successful in. Um and then the second wave would uh, would change things. Yes, he he certainly did feel conflicted, and we know about this from uh, letters he wrote to Brigham Young and John Wesley Powell. But he um, he kind of had a biography of of his life that was ghostwritten by James Little that was published in about 1883. And this is kind of extraordinary for a frontier figure to to have that kind of record during his life. But in this book, he, again, he, um, he kind of criticized, and he mentions 1861 as the year when everything changed with, with white, white, um, Indian relations. And that was the year, of course, that Brigham Young sent the settlers to St. George and sent those 90 Swiss settlers to Santa Clara. And he said, after that, relations between us and the and the Indians faltered because the whites were taking the the um the water um the the important places for water they began to use the Santa Clara Creek because the Virgin River wasn't reliable and um whites introduced their cattle they we think of Mormons as as um farmers, but they were also stockmen. That was very important, especially in southern Utah. And in southern Utah, there were broad expanses of grasslands, and uh, Mormons brought cattle and sheep, and um, these grasslands, which the Indians depended on at certain times of the year, they would harvest the grasses and grind them, you know, make, make mush, make kind of bread, make make um, um, drinks out of these grasses. Um, they would come, they, they moved seasonally. They didn't have the idea of absolute ownership of land like we do. And, and after the whites came, after 1861, they would come back to their grasslands and expecting the grass to be waiting for them, and the cattle would have started the process of overgrazing that happened in southern Utah. 
So it, it's kind of a tragic story in, in many ways. And uh, Jacob Hamlin was very conscious of that, and it's in his autobiography and those letters I mentioned. Um, but he was still loyal to the, to the Mormons. He was still loyal to Brigham Young. And so he was kind of like the spearhead of uh, Brigham Young in settling many of these early towns that gradually took over Indian territory. The book is A Frontier Live. We're talking about Jacob Hamlin, subtitle Explorer and Indian Missionary. Todd Compton is the author. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or uh, by email at upraxis at gmail.com. We have a caller, David, in Logan. David, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, yeah, some of us who are considerably older uh, grew up with a book that was published with church sanctions, uh, Jacob Hamlin Among the Indians, and of course it was uh, a, a feel-good book about a heroic character. Uh, and I'm wondering if in his research, if your guest uh, uh, feels that uh, it's accurate, but uh, just ignoring some of the negative things, or whether it's... Uh, uh, perhaps idealized uh, uh, to some extent beyond uh, what really happened, since uh, James A. Little was a contemporary of uh, Jacob Hamblin, lived on, I believe, in Hatch. Um, um, just to make sure what books we're talking about, that book by Little, it's it's written in Jacob Hamblin's own voice. Uh-huh. I did this, I did this, I did this. So... I consider it Jacob Hamlin's autobiography, you know, as ghostwritten by Little. Okay. And so it's very valuable, but um, it has some of the drawbacks of someone speaking from the end of his life, uh, and um, as opposed to, you know, diary entries that you enter the same day or letters that you write when you're in the middle of the the activities you're, you're talking about. Okay, now, there's another book that you may be mentioning, talking about, which is Preston Corbett's book, which was, uh, when was it published? In the 1950s or something like that. And we, we talked about that earlier. Um, it's, uh, it, he, he wrote, there's a lot of emphasis on the family of Jacob Hamlin. It's kind of like a family book, you know, and it's very valuable, and I, I used it a lot, you know, but he made some mistakes. Um, he didn't have access to all the sources we have access to now. And, um, and, and again, it wasn't written from an academic viewpoint. Um, so my book uh, is a lot more reliable in, in a lot of ways, even just chronologically. However, his book has more uh, family history and more information on, on the children of Jacob Hellman, for instance. But you'd consider that generally... Uh... Uh, accurate, if not complete. Uh, generally accurate. He, he, there are a number of mistakes with chronology, uh, and he, you know, a lot of the stories that are in my book just didn't get into his book either because he didn't know about them or mm-hmm. um, he didn't he didn't think it was worthwhile including them. It's a lot shorter than my book. My book has 483 pages of text, so you get your money's worth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Plus footnotes and yeah, little after that, 483 pages. Yeah, Little's book is not a large book. <laughs> no, Little's book is a little book. <laughs> yeah. That's right. David, well, thank, thank you. you. And uh, happy reading if you, if you pick up Mr. Compton's book. Uh, by the way, it's uh, published by University of Utah Press. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about uh, Jacob Hamlet's family life. Uh, I believe he did live uh, polygamy. I, I think that's the reason why he went to New Mexico. And at the end of his life, uh, apparently was planning to go to old Mexico. We'll talk a bit about that. Jacob Hamlin is our subject, early uh, Utah and uh, Western pioneer. Uh, Frontier Life is the biography. And Todd Compton is the author. More following break. On From the Top, we don't just put young people on the show to hear their incredible musical performances. We celebrate the whole kid. We're all members of the Vermont Astronomical Society, and uh, we've also gotten really into building telescopes. I run cross-country, and I run track. Well, I'll eat anything as long as it's not looking at me and as long as it's not moving around. I believe the correct term is math stud. Join me, Christopher O'Reilly, to meet America's most outstanding young musicians on From the Top each week from NPR. Friday afternoons at 2, repeated Sunday nights at 9 on Utah Public Radio. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Science Unwrapped in USU's College of Science. This Friday at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center, featured speaker Randy Martin discusses the science of Cache Valley's air pollution. Information at usu.edu slash unwrapped. And by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about frontiersman, colonizer, missionary to the Indians, explorer of the American West, Jacob Hamblin. He's long been one of the most enigmatic figures in Mormon history. A new biography is out, A Frontier Life. Author Todd Compton joins us. Todd Compton will be signing his book at uh, 5.30 this afternoon at Benchmark Books in uh, Salt Lake City. He lives in California, but is in uh, Salt Lake City for uh, events with the uh, state history uh, conference. That's ongoing, it'll be ongoing uh, Thursday through Sunday. Uh, Todd Compton's session is at uh, Fort Douglas Officers Club on Fort Douglas Boulevard in Salt Lake City, 9 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. The conference uh, kicks off uh, this evening with a, a keynote address by Jared Farmer, and that is 7 o'clock at the main Salt Lake City Public Library. So Todd Compton, uh, family life, um, Jacob Hamlin, like uh, some Mormons of the era, I, I think was a polygamist at some point. He uh, he he went, he kept kept traveling to, to get away from the law. Is that, that the case? Uh, yes. He um, he married first back east and had, oh, what was it, four or five kids with his first wife, and they divorced. So he, he married um, a woman named Rachel, and uh, she was a very good, loving wife with him, though she always kind of had health problems and crossed the plains with her and lived in Tooele and uh, eventually in southern Utah. And there, all in Tooele and southern Utah, there was a young woman who would help Rachel from the Levitt family named Priscilla. And um, and Jacob and Rachel, it's, it's, apparently they decided, you know, it would be great to have Priscilla in the family. <laughs> She's such a good helper. And so uh, she became uh, a plural wife of Jacob Hamlin. And so... Um, she lived in that house in Santa Clara, both Rachel and, and Priscilla. And Rachel had poor health, and she died. And um, not long after that, um, the Swiss saints came to southern Utah, and Jacob Hamblin married uh, Louisa Benelli, who was, again, a fairly young uh, Swiss woman. And um, so he had these two wives the rest of his life, and they followed him to Kanab. And then later they followed him down into the very, very difficult mission, uh, the Little Colorado Mission in Arizona. And then finally they moved to New Mexico. And uh, toward the end of his life, he died in 1886, but in the 1880s the the anti-polygamy campaign mounted among uh, federal marshals and federal lawmen and judges. And they looked for prominent men, and Jacob Hamlin had, had become prominent. So he um, could not spend a lot of time with his family. In addition to these Indian Indian missions, he was um, he had to stay away from his family, um, so he wouldn't be arrested and sent to jail. They were sending him way way up to Michigan at that time. Um, so and yes, he did. He died in New Mexico, but he went to. Mexico a few times, and that's the time when the Mexican co- Mexican colonies were started. And I believe that he would have moved to Mexico if he'd have lived, if he hadn't died in 1886. I believe he would have become part of the Mexican colonies. And so, um, just a just an interesting story about him. Um, he was going down to the colonies with Louisa and some of Louisa's children, and uh, a little baby about two years old, Amarilla. His last child, he had about 20, 24 kids, biological children, in addition to Indians who he adopted. And um, on the way down there, they there were Apache raids at the time. The Apaches were very dangerous. And so they were going across a desert, and a line of Indians started approaching them. And there they were, a small party of, you know, like 20 people. And 
all the whites just blenched, and Jacob Hamlin looked very carefully at the Indians, and then all of a sudden the Indians saw Jacob had recognized him and came came flying on their horses and jumped off the horses, and the leader was a Navajo named Hostile, and he embraced Jacob. So instead of a massacre, there was an embrace, and he, he had been a longtime friend of Jacob. So that's just one nice story from the the end of his life, uh, where instead of a massacre, we have this embrace of mm-hmm. Jacob and, a, and an Indian. Is is that a big part of his legacy? The, this, of course, the impulse is to displace Indians, um, and uh, Jacob Hamlin, I guess, is was a figure who was uh, talking about uh, tolerance and uh, let's treat the Indians better. Yeah, and as I say, Charles Peterson wrote a really fine article on the early Indian mission where he he talked about how, from a practical viewpoint, compared to missions, say, in England, so on the, the early Mormon Indian missions were kind of a failure. But what Jacob did was he limited violence, as the Mormons expanded, and um, he was able to talk with Indians, and he he was a balance against the the whites who wanted to um, attack Indians and and kill Indians in a punitive way. And so, you know, I, I believe he was a force for um, nonviolence throughout this 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 period of Mormon history, a period of Western history. And again, it's a contrast with, say, in the Bay Area, they put bounties on Indians. You know, they'd send people out, you know, bring us scalps, we'll give you money for Indian scalps. So it's a it's a great contrast for that kind of situation. Much else, of course, in the book. Uh, you'll have to have to read it to, to get uh, very interesting stories. The book is A Frontier Life, Jacob Hamlin, Explorer and Indian Missionary. It's new a biography of Jacob Hamlin. Todd Compton is the author, and uh, he is, he'll be signing books at Benchmark Books, 5.30 this afternoon in Salt Lake City. He's in town for the uh, State History Conference, and th- that'll be uh, beginning this evening at 7 o'clock, Maine Salt Lake City Public Library keynote address uh, titled The Making and Unmaking of Utah with the Jared Farmer. Uh, Todd Compton's presentation is on Saturday morning at the Fort Douglas Officers Club, Nine o'clock in the morning. Todd Compton, pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Coming up tomorrow, Sherry Quinn, of course, science questions. And uh, then on Monday, we're going to be talking about art and feminism in art with the Gorilla Girls. That's coming up on Monday. For producer uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening. Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. I'm Lil Barron, age 53. My relationship to Sonia is I'm from Habitat for Humanity, and she is one of our homeowners. My name is Sonia Gelter. I am 46 years old. So, Sonia... I want to know about your story with Habitat, starting from before you became a homeowner. Before I became a homeowner, I was, well, I was just getting divorced, and I had five children. We were on our way to losing a home, and I needed to move. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a place to go, and I had these five tiny kids. My twins were a year and a half, but literally, my credit was good. I had everything that I needed I was just a single mom with five kids, and no one wanted to rent to me. Um, I had six hours before I was out of the house and nowhere to go. And my friend absolutely came in on a white horse, and I got into an apartment. This apartment, right outside on our sidewalk, we had a gang beating, and the man was killed right outside on within 10 feet of our door. It was just, it was a miserable place. Then I ended up getting out of that and going into a home that was big enough for my kids in a a neighborhood, but the home was in unbelievable shape, like the whole basement, the wires, there was no ceiling in the basement. Um, The upstairs was just a stove, 
a wood burning stove, which is fine, but it was only upstairs and heat rises and my kids downstairs were, you know, we had to get space heaters and stuff and that cost more money. I ended up hearing an advertisement for Habitat for Humanity and I thought, I am not going to have someone hand me a home. I heard it one more time on my way home after I just picked up my twins from daycare and I heard this one more time and it just kept pulling at me, just kept going here. I finally put away my pride and called and they explained a little bit to me and they told me that I would work for my home and that you have good credit for this home and that you, you know, it's not a freebie, it's just a 0% loan. Put an application in, but all my kids knew that we had done this and it was, it was Christmas Eve and I got a letter in the mail from Habitat and I didn't open it and until Christmas morning and I had my kids gathered around me and I said, here we go, we're going to open this. When we opened that letter, literally we were all in a circle jumping around in the kitchen and thinking, oh, it's ours, it's going to be our home and we don't have to move. That year we had moved four times and my kids went to four different schools. And the stability that a home would provide us would <clears throat> was just exciting and it was just a blessing for us. It only took three, three months to build the home, but a couple of years um, until it was being built. And we worked hard, 250 hours. Um, my kids actually came and cleaned up after the workers and, and we swept. The home has served for much more than just our home. About four years ago, my mother had a stroke. Consequently, they ended up losing their home. And so they came to live with me because I was the one with the stable home. Um, we ended up building a ramp and doing some things to the home that my mother could go in and out of easily. She lived there for almost two years, and then she passed away in my home. Um, and it was my sanctuary, and I'm so thankful to have it. So do you think that Habitat for Humanity only helps the family? Not just the family. It, it helps, literally, it helps the whole community if they get involved. Generation after generation will be affected by my home, by just getting a home. It just, it affects everyone, I believe. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving southwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.